Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor, and I read a book. I watched a TV show. This week we're doing The Plot Against America. It's on HBO. And it is helmed by crazy, crazy, incredible showrunner David Simon, the mind behind The Wire. I checked out the first episode. Taylor checked out the book. But this whole thing, if you're not aware of it, if you... Sounds uh, dark. It's it's very odd. This is about a different route America could have taken heading into World War II if somebody else had run for president and been elected. This is postulating that what would have happened and what it would have felt like in the homeland if Charles Lindbergh had ran and been elected president of the United States going into World War II. A name that some people, if you even do recognize it, might just associate with flying across the Atlantic by himself and then having his baby abducted and held for ransom. The Lindbergh baby. We don't, <laughs> Those are the don't know big much things. about him. Yeah. That's, that's what I grew up as a child learning about. He's kind of this American hero, uh, you know, crazy feats, uh, beloved by, by many. He's just a, a huge celebrity. And then he had this horrible tragedy with, a, with, a, with his baby later in life. But past that, I really didn't know that much. Um, and so when I heard that this was the idea behind the series, I went, oh, Interesting. So we're saying that if 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 somehow America went down a, a a Nazi sympathizer type of route, interesting. Okay. So I started watching the show, and it it really starts presenting Lindbergh. He's an anti-Semitist. Yeah, I'll just get it right out there as an anti-Semite, which was a bit shocking. And I'm like, wow, it's not even subtle here that it's. it's I, and I started asking questions and I, immediately. I had to stop the show with, uh, with Emily. And, and I went, really? Did he say these things? Because <laughs> it's a lot to, to take. It'd be slanderous. A, exactly. It's a lot to take such a, a beloved, you know, American, quote unquote, hero, and then to, to, to postulate perhaps these were the views he held at the time, his right. political views, uh, which I was never aware of. I, I've, I've never had a reason to look into Charles Lindbergh. So... It's really it's a big thought experiment to think about how how close we come even to going down Drastic the wrong paths. So hopefully if you if as we talk about the series and the book and history and whatnot, you'll get a better taste in a sobering and hopeful look at if these are trying times, the the good thing to know is that these have happened before or they could happen a very different way than they did. Yeah. So this book, The Plot Against America, came out in two thousand four. And like you said, the premise of it is that FDR is defeated in the 1940 presidential election by Charles Lindbergh and then becomes the president of the United States. And anti-Semitism is spread under his rule because he has formed an alliance with Hitler and World War II essentially doesn't happen mm -hmm. until Japan bombs Pearl Harbor and FDR gets back in as president mm. in this novel. That's what happens. Gotcha. But it's, it's like you said, it's based on these isolationist ideas spread by Lindbergh in real life in this committee called the America First Committee, which we'll get into into the history of things. But that's a real thing that he was giving speeches on in real life. The big thing in regards to the show versus the book that people probably are talking about that isn't true <laughs> is uh, the series came out a couple weeks ago. The book came out in 2004. So whatever our political, geopolitical climate is with various leaders of state across the world right. has nothing to do with what this guy was writing about 16 years ago. If anything, people 
criticized him for saying it was an allegory to the Bush administration, which he also said, no, that's not what I'm writing about. (laughs) He said all he wanted to do was dramatize what didn't happen in America, but was somebody else's reality, referring to the Jewish people in Europe. Yeah. It was like, this is what they went through during World War II, but it could have happened here. What if it did happen here? That's where this whole thing lies. It's really interesting. I don't mean to jump the gun, but the, the, the series centers really around one family. Yeah. Um, no, that's not jumping the gun at all, because this in the book, it's so it's narrated by this seven-year-old boy who is named Philip Roth, who is the author. Good Lord. It's like literally him. It's almost an oh autobiographical account as if he had lived through, because right. he was seven years old Very in 1940. This is his family. He uses all the same names of his family members, his mom, his dad, the jobs they oh, had, really? his brother, all that stuff is exactly what his wow. life was like. It centers on this family in New Jersey. If uh, the ideals of of a uh, prejudice had really started to take hold here in America with yeah. a political foothold. And the difference between this and what some might perceive as other dystopian works or these allegories for mass, crazy governmental chaos going on, it's just a slight deviation that has implications. So he said in an interview where they were talking about what are your influences, he was like, I know 1984, read it a long time ago, <laughs> yeah. you know, like... He said Orwell imagined a huge change in the future with horrendous consequences for everyone. Quote, I tried to imagine a small change in the past with horrendous consequences for a relative few. Right, right. This is a, is a particularly uh, astute device that, that he has here because living in a politically tumultuous time, uh, I'm set right there in the middle of this family listening to a speech by a man saying things that that just are crazy. Mm -hmm. It was really fascinating to see as they went into each of the family members uh, of this household. Mm -hmm. It it, it was a bit of a slow episode, but just giving you a, a, a good amount of time to sit with each person to see what they were about. And through that, you got to see all of their weaknesses and how the political atmosphere at this time would affect the mentalities of every person in the household. Uh, yeah. It, it, by the end of the, the first episode, you're, as the audience member, know, wow, Lindbergh cannot be president. Though one of the main characters, one of the main boys is hiding drawings of Lindbergh. He's an artist and mm-hmm. he's draw, life drawings all over the place. And he's getting up in the middle of the night to finish a portrait of Lindbergh outside the Spirit of St. Louis because he's an American hero. He yeah. is. He's, he's Captain America. He is. He's the, absolutely. He's the closest thing to a hero at this time. 100%. Yeah. Um, so w- as a father, how, what do I do about my son aligning with Somebody who really hates, who could hate him. Mm-hmm. That right there is a particularly interesting dynamic. Yeah. But then that that this that type of dynamic follows every character in this household, and that shows you the array, the depth of which this really is drudging up real conflict and real paranoia of just not knowing where people stand, even mm-hmm. within your own home. Which is such a, I guess, more of a modern way to take it. Like the boots on the ground. How is it affecting the every person? in the situation yeah. as opposed to the grand yeah. sci-fi alternate reality Hitler wins you know like mm-hmm. all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff this is just like no we got a different president and some different things were enacted mm-hmm. and what would that do to a family 
it's a scary thought to think, well, if you take what's maybe the political unrest of, of, of the country right now and place it, and I know that's not what he's doing, but it's that is just the genius of all of this because right. it's it is tapping into the reality that is so close to us. What he's writing about almost could have happened right. for real. And in an interview, they had he had, they had asked him like, "Is this a tragedy? Is what do you make of this as an author?" And ultimately, he's like, "Well, I think it's hopeful in the sense that like this didn't happen." It could have. There is a history, which I wrote, where right. this thing could have happened right. on American soil, and it did not. And so there's something to be said for that. 100%. But it's uh, also to look and see, like, well, how close was it, and why didn't it happen? And yeah. if Charles Lindbergh had just said, I'm going to run for president, maybe people would have voted for him. Really? I mean, I, it, it becomes a, a, a really, really fascinating interesting thought experiment yeah this is the type of thing that i mean like i said while we're all living our lives differently and really starting to rethink some things this is not a bad way to do it so what is this based on in real life then let's talk about this america first movement that actually existed i had to stop the show because i'm like you can't just say somebody (laughs) thought this stuff turns out he did uh, yeah, I, but I just had never heard this, and and again, just relating to what's going on today. I mean, it's amazing that people can be touching on and writing about the ideas, the things that well, they have happened, but we thought we were past. Who knew yeah. they were going to happen again? Who knew that a pandemic was going to happen? <laughs> we thought that two weeks ago, three weeks ago, a month ago, probably all of us were thinking it's almost impossible, right? Well, when smallpox was eradicated, right? people were like, "Oh, no more diseases. Right? Like, we figured out how to stop diseases. We're done. Right." No, done. Yeah. No, it's when you put your it's when you put your weapons down, when you put your guard down. Yeah, stuff starts seeping back in. So, uh, and with this historical stuff, I'm not a master historian, so I'm going to gloss over some things and give a. We broad take this week to week, people. Overview. Yeah, <laughs> we're working hard here. But if you have any extra additional comments, or there's something that's like blatantly erroneous with five historical peer-reviewed sources, yeah. please send it to us. But please, in, in if general, we're wrong. Let us know. This is in general. And I'll post links, as always, in the show notes to, to where I got all this stuff. America First Movement, founded by isolationists in 1940, at its height, 800,000 members wow. in the U.S. We forget, going into, nothing had happened in regards to the U.S. with World War II. Yeah, that doesn't happen until 1941. And so, at this point, there is a strong case to be made with these what is an isolationist viewpoint to be like, why are we sticking our nose Mm -hmm. in the rest of the world's problem? Mm -hmm. Why are we giving money to England to help them? Why, (laughs) why, like, what are we doing? They get into it in the show. Specifically, I mean, I think this is put from the, the German pub is the idea is if it's Jews being persecuted in Germany, what does that have to do with Americans now? Yeah. And so if you're an American Jew, you get it. If you're not, (laughs) You might take a, a a little bit of 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 just like understanding to to get like oh there's like crimes against humanity happening uh, and yeah maybe somebody ought to stop that that that's at some point in the world somebody has to say no at that point is it the United States responsibility I don't know did they it get certainly the, did, did they, they come yeah. after but yeah did it did they get in trouble with a lot of people by being involved in World War One yes yes did. <laughs> A mass, mass depression called the Great Depression happened <laughs> after the t- 20s. And then somebody got pulled in FDR to try and help figure out how to get us out of that mess. Yes. Now we're a- almost like not quite out of depression. You know, it's been mm-hmm. a decade. Things mm-hmm. are sort of. And then it's like, oh, the world's at war. Why would we try and, you know, it right. is a legitimate 
concern. So it starts it starts there, but then you have then there are people who don't like Jews. Nazis were a real thing. Anti-Semites are a real thing. It wasn't just so in Germany. It when was you all start over, yeah. going, well, this is not an American problem. What is our what? Why? Why would we ever? You start attracting people who actually want the persecution of Jews because that's going to that means it's going to continue. That means now the American ideal is not a threat overseas. Yeah. That creates a really saturous bed attracting right. those types of people. So, so it this, can start yeah. with a with an idea that on its face totally makes sense. Patriot Act, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have implications that attract bad actors in right. bad faith. And that's this America First movement had a lot of people. John F. Kennedy donated to it. Walt Disney was a part of it. Sinclair Lewis, Gerald Ford, E.E. E. Cummings, uh, like lots of famous people had their finger in the pie. In and that doesn't to mean stuff. that they were anti-Semites. Yeah. That means that they were blind enough to not realize what they were sympathizing or with. Or some of them were. Some of them definitely and were. And saw what it was being it's used, hard turned to into. Say who? Yeah. <laughs> it's and hard so, to say you, they were an anti-Semite. It, it's yeah. very it becomes that's where the muddled lives, and that's exactly where the paranoia is 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 dredged out of this story is not knowing where people's intentions actually lie. Mm-hmm. And it's not like this was like a thing and like, oh thank God it didn't happen. Like Evan said, like the US was still very anti-Semitic. Like the four biggest universities, Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Princeton, in terms of prestige had anti-Semitic policies where they had quotas on the number of Jewish students really? that could be admitted during no this idea. time. Yeah, so oh it's like, God. it is still proliferating everywhere. It's not like, oh, thank God this didn't happen. It still did happen, yeah. but not to the degree as All it did All the more saying of how close we were. If we, if you got 10% nudge in a different direction, what would have happened? Who yeah. would it have been bolded? Yeah. So to the end of this, it disbanded a few days literally after Pearl Harbor in 1941 because they were like, ah, we got to get into the war effort. Like this idea of yeah. we're not involved. Now we are. Too bad. Yep. So the whole thing got down. But now where does Charles Lindbergh fit into this whole thing? Why <laughs> yeah. him? That's so weird. He was the biggest proponent of this and was the major speaker and involver in all this stuff. But Charles Lindbergh as a person, just as a refresher on his whole shtick. May 1927, he's 25 years old, is the first nonstop solo transatlantic flight. That's pretty awesome. Became a hero. Absolutely. National, nationally renowned. Internationally renowned. Well, just, just Yeah. Master of aviation. Was a nobody. Can you imagine being that. a seven-year-old at this time? He'd be, he would be cap- Captain America. Yeah. For real. Bolstering aviation. Planes had not, like, not nearly to the degree of what he is saying they're capable of or what the human, like, yeah. 33 and a half hours alone across the Atlantic. Oh sometimes he was 10,000 feet up. Sometimes he was 10 feet above the water. Oh like, it was a, it uh, was a harrowing experience, but oh he got my it done. God. So now he's a hero. I get confused about this kind of stuff because I, I, I you learn about it. Amelia Earhart was the first woman to do this. Right. She did the same thing a little bit further north in the Atlantic and this uh-huh. that was in 1932. Okay. She though just in a in a weird yeah. twist of events for modern times was a nurse in Toronto during the 1918 flu oh. pandemic and she got the Spanish what they call the Spanish flu uh-huh. in 1918 really? in Toronto. So it's like you hear about really? all these people fighting the on the front flu. on the front lines and whatever she was involved in that. Oh my gosh, that's in, incredible. In, in the in the parallel to what we're going through now most recently. I'm still like are we going to find it? We're going to find the plane one day. <laughs> one day or just it's out there somewhere, right? Uh, somewhere it's in the Pacific. Somewhere. Yeah. Out there somewhere, Amelia. 
Um, but anyways, back to Charles Lindbergh. In 1929, he marries Anne Morrow, the daughter of a famous diplomat. Mm-hmm. This is then when his, mm, you know, see. his kid gets kidnapped. I didn't know anything about his wife. That starts mm-hmm. to make She's sense. She's a famous person. Yeah. Uh, not only is he a national, a global figure, but now he's starting to actually align somewhere with politi- political with yeah. you know with with uh, with people of power it's yeah. it's that's that's interesting i did not know that at all i never knew anything about his wife yeah yeah so they then ha- their kid gets kidnapped and murdered 3 years later it was a huge media circus there was a ransom that they gave and they tagged the money but then the kid never showed up and then they found the body dead in the woods later See, I didn't know that either. I thought that the baby legitimately disappeared. I knew they caught the guy, but I thought they never actually found the body and that right. the idea of where did the Lindbergh baby go was still the thought. So I, I didn't even know yeah, that they, they found, found the it. Body. And then they got the guy because they found that he was using the money. So they grabbed him and like, where'd you get this money? And then they raided his place and they found all the other money from the ransom. <laughs> And then he was executed. Yep, blue bills. We oh, yeah. got him. Just, <laughs> yeah, just he's paying with, paying with $3 bills over here. <laughs> Um, but because of all that media circus and the crazy attention and all his life was in shambles, they moved to Europe. This is where he gets involved with Germany, helps them with aviation, oh, gets these crazy ideas oh, and whatnot, which obviously no. proliferated. Yeah. Oh, no. He actually uh, got a medal from the famous German officer, Ermann Goring. Really? In 38. Yeah, like a, a service medal. Now which, it totally makes sense. Yeah. See, I didn't, know he went, I didn't know he went to Germany. Mm-hmm. I didn't know he went to Germany and started helping, honestly, their air force. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. Then came back to the U.S. And this is thir- a no-brainer. Came back- I'm an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> no, I had no idea Lindbergh was a Nazi. <laughs> Nobody knew. I mean, people knew. So he comes back then <laughs> in 39. Like we said, This that's literally when the America's First Movement is yeah. happening. Yeah. This is when FDR- is coming back to get reelected. World War II, mm-hmm. we're on the brink. Here's the time and what place What if somebody for him. stood up and said, why is America getting involved? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. there. Yeah, It's almost an idea of the way history went. You think, oh, well, that was just the thinking of the time. That was the trajectory. That was the clear choice. Yeah. It starts to make you actually consider what it would be like to be there and have the political echo swaying on both sides pushing and pulling and not really knowing what who to trust. Yeah. And what if somebody did stand up, an American hero, a world figure like that standing up saying, why are we getting involved? That, that I mean, I, I have one, I took, of that yeah. are massive. I took one quote from the book, which I thought was great, speaking to what you're talking about, where he's saying, history, where everything unexpected in its own time is chronicled on the page as inevitable. The terror of the unforeseen is what the science of history hides. Um. Because it does just seem like, yeah. well, like you said, like, well, that's the way it went. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the only it's way. It's so it easy gone. to be taught history and go, ah, I see. Yeah. That's why I think this time to be studying this show and this thought experiment is 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 perfect, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, How easy would it be to, to, right. to think and feel that at the time if that's the way it went? And it's not so far fetched, I found. Uh, and this is in the first episode that you. Th- Saw they, they they've only they've only yeah. got two out. It comes out on the weekend, so I wasn't able to get to the second episode. But you're no, you're not behind. If you don't know anything about this, this is a perfect time to jump in. Yeah, no spoilers on anything. They talk from the first episode. This is a real thing. There was a real poll taken in 1939 amongst people in the U.S., and only 39 percent agreed that Jews should be treated like everyone else. 53 percent believe that Jews are different and should be restricted, and 10 percent believed that Jews should be deported. Oh my God! That was the public sentiment. In I the definitely US in thought that was a bit of just writer 
you know, trying to understand no. a little bit yeah. of what was, you know, how the thing, how feelings were moving at the time. I, I post, no I'll post, a, I'll a post a link. That was a legitimate poll, poll that was taken. Yeah. So the reason this whole America's first movement, like we said, well, obviously it disbanded because we got involved in the war. <laughs> uh, but well, I guess we're in it now. <laughs> they attached us. Yeah. That was December of 1941. Charles Lindbergh, where sort of things really went off the edge, and thank goodness, and like we talked about, like things. Is this could've... it? Is this when he? Yeah. Okay. See, I was wondering <laughs> when me and Taylor were just kind of comparing lightly notes before the show, and I was like, "Yeah, we had to stop and look into Lindbergh and be like, what well, he really was." But Taylor found more. Please. He, he he was giving a speech, doing a rally in September of '41, and. I'll post a link to it. There's even audio versions if you want to listen to it. Oh, wow. They have it recorded. But he he did say, so here's some, something he said. He was like, no person with a sense of the dignity of mankind can condone the persecution the Jewish race suffered in Germany. Okay, check. All sounds good. But then he goes on to add and oh, talks no. about how Jews are war agitators and are inciting it. And then the big thing that got him in tons of hot water, he said... The Jews are one of the principal forces attempting to lead the U.S. into war. The Jews' greatest danger to this country lies in their large ownership and influence in our motion pictures, our press, and our government. Thankfully, there was a lot of press that was like, well, we're pumping the brakes on this because yeah. this is – yeah, you can't be going around saying that. See, what is this This movement? is the stuff coming out of his mouth in the show, and I'm going, no way. Yeah, that was no a real speech. Way. Yeah. <laughs> It's mind-blowing. And just as a clarification, he never did run for president. Yeah. This is the author's fabrication of like, well, what if we just took it a step? And so he Pearl, never actually considered it? There is one sentence in history from some Republican committee members of thinking mm. of asking him or something like that. And that's where Philip Roth gets the idea for this story because he said he saw that. But there's never it's any actual, It's yeah, very hazy. And there's never didn't. actually historical indication. He never made a bid. He never went to the com committee. He never convention. had an exploratory committee yeah. to think about running for president. There was any, never any of that stuff. And obviously Pearl Harbor happened then, which it doesn't in this which fictional made, account. Which, uh, yeah, that was the equalizer there. We re you realized exactly what had what had to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and obviously history happened the way it did. Yeah. So Roosevelt won four terms, which is insane. And wild. <laughs> he won the election in 32 after Herbert Hoover mm -hmm. <laughs> had a terrible time <laughs> with the Depression, you know. Won again in 36. Massive. The other guy, Alf Landon, only won Maine and Vermont. Oh. He just destroyed him. <laughs> Decimated. <laughs> he won again in 40, and then he won again in 44, but died mm -hmm. uh, in April of 45, months after starting. Yeah. Never again. And that's when Truman, as vice, yeah, and then they created the 22nd Amendment months later being like, well, presidents, it was, a, it was an honorary thing to say you're not going to run three terms. Like Roosevelt tried to run and well, didn't get it. I don't know. That's an, maybe that's another part of history I'd like to get a little more context of because I, I, it seems really interesting looking back. Now we look at FDR as, as such. A, I mean, he's like one of the greats. Oh with Abraham God. Lincoln and yeah. But now, but when you think, oh, it took four terms to do that, and then immediately following his death, they were like, never again. Interesting, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. If you if you just had one of the best presidents of all time that got a lot done, but it took four terms, why then would you make a rule saying? Two's the max. 
he got a lot done and saw us through one of the most well, tumultuous yeah. times. So here's it's the just thing. an interesting yeah. thought yeah. of because I've never thought of it exactly about well, why would somebody want to put that rule in place? That's an area that I'd And like that's to. where we're talking about like with this America First Committee where they're like, Well, we don't want to go into war. Like Roosevelt had all sorts of problems associated with him as well, mm-hmm. which we won't necessarily get into all of them, but just as an example, I found I'll post a link to a nineteen thirty six poll that said, now granted, he's just won his second term. Mm-hmm. The public answering yes, 45% of them said, do you believe the acts and policies of the administration may lead to dictatorship? Really? Yeah. Fascinating. So the actual 1940 election, since that, what, what was the real thing that happened? If Lindbergh <laughs> didn't, you know, who was he against all that stuff? It's, yeah. Who did he run against? <laughs> <laughs> it's this guy, Wendell Wilkie, <laughs> lost to history. It seems like, because we don't know who he Poor is. Poor guy. He Wilkie, was a, a very odd because there were only so many options that as a Republican, w- they were willing to put up against Roosevelt yeah. in this time. Yeah. Uh, the other options that they had had like too hard of a stance or they were too isolationist or too pro-war, mm. you know, to balance out what FDR was going for. It was a tenuous time because it's like you don't want to be too far on one side or the other. Yeah. This Wendell Wilkie guy was not in politics. Very interesting. He was the CEO of the Commonwealth and Southern Corp, which was an electrical power company that provided power to 11 states. Hmm. So he had nothing to do with politics. He was a businessman. Interesting. Going against FDR at this time. He was more pro-war than FDR, which put him on the opposing side, which gave them sort of a balance. I see. Because FDR was still in that Whereas people thought, but he's not, he's like waffling yeah. to my understanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a conf- complicated He's waiting to time. be drawn in. But this guy is like, no, we need to fight this. We need to send aid we need to, meet it to England. And his policies extended over into FDR's time. Like he is credited with doing a lot of good by promoting those things. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. we did send a ton of aid to Great Britain when it was needed in the form of money and resources and all of that stuff. And he was the proponent of that even into World War II. So even him just running, he's able to influence the platform. Yeah. That had major implications. Yeah. So in mm-hmm. regards to like mm-hmm. Lindbergh didn't get the thing, but something that did happen in 33, there was this guy, Smedley Butler. People have such weird Smedley. names. We've really changed the name game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the last Wendell Wilkie years. and Smedley <laughs> Butler. <laughs> We ought to go back, to be yeah. honest. I'm tired of Chris. Try to John. <laughs> get some Smedleys in here. Get some some Wilkies. This guy, Smedley Butler, he revealed this conspiracy. He was a part of the Marine Corps. He was a big Marine Corps general during World War One. Yeah. Wealthy businessmen were trying to create a fascist veterans organization to overthrow FDR oh. in 1933, shortly after his first election. Oh, wow. So the precedent for this was there was wartime compensation that was supposed to be doled out to these veterans. Okay. But it was such a huge time frame from when they ended the war versus when they were supposed to receive this. So thousands of World War I veterans camped out in D.C. in this protest riotous situation. And Hoover, who was president before FDR, removed them and kicked them out. So then there became this underworld. It's not entirely credible, but this guy said they tried to get him involved in it, and he he outed it all. Oh my but it never gosh. materialized yeah. in anything, but it was definitely the historical fact that something was going on, whether or not it materialized into an actual coup oh, of these wild. veterans that were just going to storm the... I mean, who knows what? 
that's fascinating stuff. So it just I'm just trying to imagine what this would have been would would have even been like. It seems almost hokey to like to have to shoo a bunch of World War One veterans off of the, the front lawn of the saying White you'll House. get your money soon. Yeah, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, good lord. So I'd like to discuss some of the other major literary pieces that deal with this alternate history Mm -hmm. if the U.S. had gone completely fascist, Mm -hmm. which we have talked about before, Mm. whether you know it or not. Um, (laughs) How about that? (laughs) So the first one is called It Can't Happen Here, written uh, in 1935, Mm. before any of this is happening. Oh, wow. A novel by Sinclair Lewis, who, if you remember, was a part of this America's First Committee much later, whether or not he was anti-Semitic or, you know. It gets muddy. He was the first U.S. writer to receive the Nobel Prize. Really? Huge body of work. Wow. But this novel, It Can't Happen Here, is about the rise of Buzz Windrip, this totalitarian fascist. It's more of a satire, but it's still tragic. But critics say at the time, because obviously all this stuff, World War II wasn't happening yet. It resembles this famous Louisiana politician, Huey Long, who was preparing to run in the 1936 election. Huey Long was assassinated in 1935. Oh, my gosh. The year this book came out. Oh, my gosh. But it was treated as, oh, this is a treatise. Like, if Huey Long gets in, this is what's going to happen. I see. Oh, wow. So it was a totally different oh, yeah. alternate history oh, that then never whoa, got fulfilled. Yeah. Oh, because we get caught up in in day to day of like, well, what did this person write for prison? What did this person write for prison? I've never really thought about who were those names being pulled out of a hat in 1936. You know, like I've <laughs> yeah. never ever, like I barely know who Spiro Agnew is, <laughs> Nixon's vice president. You know, like I like, yeah. It's it's interesting to think about who are the characters and the players in the in this realm. It, people who may have never even held an office and actually got anywhere, but they their name was in the pile. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's interesting enough to understand where the minds of people really were at that time. Yeah, he's this very controversial governor and then senator from Louisiana mm-hmm. who was going to be in place of FDR and then he got assassinated. So Lord. How did he uh, get assassinated? You know anything about it? So his assassination, he was just passing a bill, removing somebody. This was in the state capitol in Louisiana. Oh. The guy who he ousted with the bill's son-in-law came in and shot him with a handgun. Oh, my God. Uh... (laughs) The other thing that I wanted to talk about that we had talked about before is this book called The Iron Heel, Mm. written by Jack London in 1908. Mm. And we had talked about Jack London, London as being like an early proponent of science fiction. Yeah. I was I saw no reference to this, but I pieced the connection together myself. Just listen to this and tell me if it reminds you of anything that we've talked about. It's one of the earliest things classified as modern dystopian fiction. It's unusual for Jack London in that it's a first-person narrative from the perspective of a woman, mm. which he didn't really write mm-hmm. from. So the book itself is based on a fictional Everhard manuscript, which was buried and found centuries later. From this woman who lived in this crazy dystopian time, the novel has an intro and footnotes by this other scholar who found this manuscript in 2600 AD, which sounds exactly like The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds exactly like (laughs) The Handmaid's Tale. And and what what is the the basis of the the Iron Heel was yeah. this fascist yeah. crazy government that rose up from 1912 to 1932 in the U S. Oh, as wow. an alternate, but it, it wasn't. It, but he was writing this in 1908. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. No, I mean, but look, he's 
he's tapped into something there. He's tapped into the conscious of whatever people are thinking and feeling and whatever is out there in the airwaves at that time. Uh, I just couldn't believe that it was the exact format of it, like, oh, here's this <laughs> manuscript found from a woman who had survived oh this God. time and a scholar from 2600 AD is piecing it together what happened in the 1930s. We repeat ourselves, whether we like it or not. We repeat ourselves. Sorry if you've heard all this five times. What? No, no. I mean, no. I mean, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, humans. Yeah. We just we will continue to repeat this. I mean, even in the most beautiful, crazy of stories. Look, the device of that happened. <laughs> oh my God! I mean, uh, decades and decades and decades and decades apart. Yeah. Um, the exact same device talking about real big injustices and dangers in the world. Um, they're directly relatable, but seemingly have no connection to each other whatsoever. Yeah. That's just an example of what we were trying to talk about earlier is that we're, we're moving through history together and we can only take so much with us. We're getting yeah. better at bringing things with us, but we will lose things and we will repeat ourselves and we go through this. This is yeah. a cycle, a natural cycle yeah. throughout the world. This is just another a, a small example of that, about how it happens even in creativity. I mean, I'm sure we've all yeah. made something and then something else pops up that's just like it. What? Yeah. It, it happens, man. And that means that that means probably more often than not, if that happens to you, you're probably tapped into something. You're probably thinking about something that somebody else really is also thinking about. Yeah. That means you're on track somewhere, <laughs> somehow. So. Yeah. Uh, We're not too far off. I did. There, there's one little thing which I'll post links to because it's kind of involved and esoteric in a way, but it's by these guys, Howe and Strauss, who came up with the generational theory. Like you're talking about how these things repeat yes, itself yes. over and over and over See, again. I think I, I just think about all this stuff in two in the morning. People have actually put names to it all. <laughs> these are the guys. These are the guys. You use their work all the time. They coined the term millennials in 1987. I'll get, I'm going to beat them up, <laughs> giving us that name. <laughs> but they were thinking about this stuff long before it's become a concept. And they've written books about like generational cycles from now to 2200 or whatever. You know, like That's they're bad. thinking That's about amazing. how these things repeat. There's some holes in it. But this stuff it's is worth... on my mind so much. Yeah. And it has been over the last few years. But this this type of thing... I'm, I'm, this is something I'm going to go delve into because yeah. this is really, I'm very, very interested in, in how yeah. we repeat ourselves. In layman's, it's like there are four historical turnings or cycles that happen every 80 to 100 years, four that happen. And then there are four generational archetypes, depending on where you are in your life when those historical yeah. moments happen. Yeah. I won't get into all of it, but that's that's the general theory. Yeah. Of it, And it's just fascinating to look and see how like, okay, here's how what we call the GI generation, the silent generation, the baby boomers, the millennial generation, generation X, how they fit into, oh, in general, these are the archetypes of what those generations represent as a type of person, yeah, where yeah. also that fits 100%. into the big four moments of the past hundred years where you were in your life. Yeah. And that carries over hundreds of years before us and potentially hundreds of years after us. Oh God, I love this. <laughs> this is, this is, this is, honestly, I'm trying to bring every episode we do into this realm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I am so fascinated with this idea of repeating ourselves and how close we come to good things, bad things, and how close we are to just going down different roads. And we just never yeah. are aware of that at all. So I'm really thankful that we were yeah. able to cover something that directly talks about that idea because it's I really, yeah. really important. I told Evan before we started, I heard on, the, on another podcast 
somebody saying the thing about times like these is there's always been times like these. Yeah. Like there's something comforting in that, even though it is scary. Yeah. And like the season that we haven't thought about for a long time is the one that's most up ahead. Right, right, right. Because right. we haven't, li- like all humans that experienced the flu of 1918 are dead. They're gone. So we forgot about it. Yeah. But now we're experiencing that again and we'll, ex- and, you know. This is a good time to examine things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, while we're in the midst of something that not, almost we didn't think was possible, um, I'm, for one, I'm just really thankful that, you know, that we're not having to fight some major conflict, uh, that yeah. there's not some major war happening. Some I'm glad our event is something like this, an equalizer, a unifier globally. Um, yeah. That's given me a lot of hope. And it's it's material like the plot against America in this particular moment that it's really got my wheels turning. And I'm, I'm hoping that this is food for thought out there while we're all. Uh, keeping our distance, <laughs> and it's not to and it's not to be uh, deterministic either. It's like things change, things like you can contribute. It's not just like, well, the wheels of history are turning, and exactly. it's always going to repeat. There are cycles are to be? these things, but you can you can be involved in making them what they are. Yeah. So we'll be here. Yeah, <laughs> we'll be here every Friday. Yeah. Please reach out to us at LiteratePod on Instagram. We sent out some more stickers to folks because they reached out to us. I hit up a little lending library down the street. I found a lending library and I put stickers in a bunch of books and I left a stack of stickers inside. Sanitized, of course. (laughs) 100%. But uh, if you want some, we will sanitize them before we send them to you. And uh, just reach out to us at IlliteratePod on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you guys. Okay. Catch you all next week. Bye.